Hi, and welcome back to Your School is Effing You, a podcast about all of the ways that the modern institution of education is failing students, teachers, and democracy. I'm Timothy Budd, your host, and I'm a teacher of philosophy and humanities in Montreal, Quebec, in Canada. Before we get started today, I wanted to thank Robert and David from Grading for Growth for allowing me to guest post and for working with me on my post. I want to thank those of you who read my post and shared it and commented on it. And thank you also to those of you who listened to episode one. I'm excited to be talking to you again today. This is episode two. Why do we have the A through F grading scheme? In this episode, I want to tell you a story. It is, of course, the story of the A through F grading scheme. To be sure, I'm not going to tell the story of its very first use. By some accounts, it goes back to the 1880s, Harvard or Mount Holyoke. And I'm not really interested in trying to explain why the use of letters rather than numbers. What I am really interested in is how this grading scheme became so standard. Today in the U.S., most schools use the letter system. There's still some use of other dominant schemes, obviously the 100-point or percentage system, the grade point average. And then if you consider standardized tests, they all have very different schemes. The SAT has its own scale, the ACT, the NAEP tests, the LSATs, the MCATs. These differences are important. How you read the results of these tests depends on whether or not you understand their grading schemes. The news regularly decries a 7-point decrease, a 9-point decrease in reading or math on the NAEP scores without noting that it's a 500-point scale. My own institution requires that grades be reported in numbers, not in letters, but it also provides equivalencies for teachers and students. So, for example, an A-plus is equal to a 4.3 on the grade point system, uh, and a 91 and over on the percentage system. An A is equal to a 4.0 GPA, or an 88 to a 90. An A-minus is equal to a 3.7, and an 85 to an 87. You get the idea. And the point of providing these conversions, these lexica, if you like, uh, is to ensure the ability to communicate between teachers and students and between grade levels and between institutions. And this is an important part of the background here. That is to say, all of this is an attempted move towards standardization. Even if not every institution speaks the same language, the A through F language, the 100-point language, the GPA language... They can all be converted into one another so that institutions can appropriately communicate with one another. This is the issue of standardization. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about standardization, but not a whole lot in this episode. I'll want to come back to it in future episodes. uh, Standardization can mean a whole slew of things in the context of education. 
So you can talk about uh, standardized testing, uh, for example. I'm not going to want to talk about this today, but there are lots of fantastic articles and books on the subject. Uh, you can talk about the standardization of criteria for grading. Uh, this is something I'll definitely want to follow up on because it uh, links up very strongly with what it is that I'm going to have to say today. What we're really talking about right now is the standardization of the language we use to report grades. And making sense of this aspect of standardization, this kind of standardization, uh, requires a bit of review of something I talked about in the previous episode. Just a reminder, I placed the origin of grades in the context of modern public education in North America in the previous episode. Here's a bit of a refresher. Between the 1830s and the 1860s, uh, we have what is uh, commonly referred to as the Reform Period, principally led by Horace Mann, although not only uh, by Horace Mann, uh, where you have a concentrated effort to establish a system of public education in North America. Um, it is pushing for a public system, education for all, publicly funded, uh, in order to support democracy. The reform movement starts to see some success in the post-Civil War period, so uh, uh, the latter half of the 1860s. And what I mean by success, uh, once again, is uh, we start to see the creation of ministries of education in various states, uh, especially Massachusetts, where Horace Mann is. Uh, we see states uh, explicitly setting aside funds for education, uh, and most importantly, for our purposes, we see uh, increased enrollments uh, in primary and secondary uh, institutions. These increased enrollments necessitates the dividing up of these old schoolhouses into grade levels. The establishment of grade levels, of course, requires the introduction of procedures for determining matriculation. Uh, this is a simplification of the story, of, uh, of course, uh, but it is central to the story. So in other words, with the invention of grades or grade levels, you need grades. But there are two other historical developments uh, that contribute to the need for standardized language uh, in which to express educational success. The first is uh, mobility. The success of public education coincides with the increased mobility of Americans moving from the country to the city or from the city to the city. Uh, a lot of this, of course, is linked with uh, industrialization. And second of all, and this is slightly later but still linked, uh, in the first decades of the 20th century, we find a complementary increase in enrollments in post-secondary institutions. Now, at first, universities are handling their own admissions through entrance exams, uh, for example, through uh, entrance interviews. But as enrollments increase, the, this becomes increasingly unmanageable. And so secondary schools are accredited in order to streamline the process for the universities. The universities and secondary schools are now working hand-in-hand hand to determine who is eligible to continue past secondary. This, once again, requires a standardized language. The secondary schools need to be able to communicate in a standardized language to the universities. The story of the rise of the A through F grading scheme, then, is closely linked to this last stage, namely to the rise of the universities and the accreditation of the secondary schools. At the same time that the universities are beginning to rely on secondary schools for matriculation, 
we see uh, an increase in research into the reliability of grading at the secondary level. The earliest study that I'm aware of is by Edgeworth in 1888, but the results of Edgeworth's uh, research is repeated over and over and over again for the next 20, 30 years and continues to be repeated. But for the purposes of this episode, I'm going to concentrate on a series of studies published by Starch and Elliott in 1912 and 1913. The reason I want to concentrate on Starch and Elliott is in part because they run a series of studies that are all related to one another and then publish some follow-up findings and suggestions. They start by looking at reliability and variation in high school English, and then move on to high school history, and then interestingly, move on to high school math, before Starch, on his own, publishes a paper with his own suggestions. And so the reason to use their work, it's not the only work during this time period, the reason to use their work is because it's largely comprehensive. So here's the procedure that Starch and Elliot follow. They take one student exam from each of these three disciplines, and they give that same exam to 200 different teachers, and they compare the grades attributed by each teacher. The idea is you plot out the marks given by all of these teachers to see if there are any patterns. Now, the most important conclusion to start with is that in each of these disciplines, they find a range of 40 points. In fact, the range for the history exam was almost 50 points, the lowest mark being 43, the highest 92. These results are shocking. They were shocking to Starch and Elliot. I think they're still shocking today. I think they shouldn't have been shocking in the early decades of the 1900s because Edgeworth found the same results 20 years earlier. And they shouldn't be shocking today because this research has been repeated over and over again. Starch and Elliot were certainly aware of the devastating implications. To give you a sense of this, I want to read a couple of quotes from the first three articles in no particular order. The promotion or retardation of a pupil depends to a considerable extent upon the subjective estimate of his teacher. Such wide variations certainly impeach the reliability of the marks. Marks are far less precise than the majority of teachers and pupils believe. A little analysis, however, will show the absurdity of assuming greater precision in evaluating a mathematical paper than in evaluating a language or any other kind of paper. Contrary to current belief, Grades in mathematics are as unreliable as grades in language or in history. How unreliable? 40 to 50 points worth. The word that continually strikes me is absurd. And I think we have to take this conclusion seriously. I'd like to pause for a second from the major theme of the A through F grade scheme uh, just to talk for a second about the math scores, which I find very interesting. Of course, most people are going to assume that math scores are going to be more consistent. You're going to find less variation, more reliability. I think that assumption is reasonable, 
even if it turns out to be false. The assumption is based on the idea that the answers to a math problem are objective. They're binary. There's a right answer and everything else is wrong. So then the question is, how could we find such a massive discrepancy even in math? Now, I'm not sure what the answer is. I'm not going to try and propose an answer. But I have read some interesting suggestions, and one of my favorites so far is this. There's a stereotype about teachers, even among teachers, that says that the sign of a good teacher, in the sense of an effective teacher, is being a strict marker. I have in my own time known teachers who were very proud of being difficult markers, difficult graders. This is a sign of being a good teacher, being an effective teacher. But since math tests can be marked against an objective answer sheet, teachers who want to appear strict find ways to deduct points by insisting that students show their work, that the work that they provide matches what the teacher would have done, that sort of thing. I wouldn't blame a teacher who did this. This is what we've been taught by the system that relies so heavily on grading and testing. To be effective, to be considered a good teacher, you need to be a strict grader. In any case, what Starch and Elliot are really interested in here is not the range, but the standard deviation, which initially they found to be around seven points. This, of course, is significant. It means the difference between a 90 and an 83, for example, or a 97 and a 90. And teachers and adults might think of these differences as being somewhat negligible, the difference between a 90 and an 83, but we all know that students do not find this negligible. So what's the solution? The solution suggested by Starch and Elliot and by virtually every researcher after, was to move to an A through F scale. So now the question is, why is this a solution? That's the million-dollar question. In his final article, Starch finds a way to reduce the standard deviation to 5 rather than 7. This allows him to argue that there's no need for more precision than a scale that runs from 100 to 95 to 90 to 85, to 80, to 75, to 70, to 65, and then to failure. In other words, we can't be precise enough to give a 97, so stop using that number. What that means is you only need a scale with 9 or 10 points. And so what he proposes is A+, A-, B+, B-, C plus, C minus, D plus, D minus, and F. There's no need for A, B, C, or D because we cannot be that precise. So what we're doing is moving from the 100-point scale to the A through F scale in order to avoid the illusion of precision. Hopefully it's clear to you what's happening here, but I want to try and draw this out a little bit. There are two possible conclusions to draw here. One is the purpose of moving from the 100-point scale to the A through F scale is to hide our dirty little secret, which is that grades are unreliable. The second possible conclusion 
is to say that the move from the 100-point scale to the A through F scale is fairer because the scale is less sensitive. But I think these are just two different ways of telling the exact same story. If, on the other hand, you prefer conclusion 2, then if we remember that variation in terms of range is upwards of 40 points, why don't we adopt the least sensitive scale of all, pass-fail? Hopefully some of you are thinking there might be an even less sensitive scale. We could end our conversation here. We have accounted for the existence of the A through F grading scale. It is a device that's meant to hide unreliability and variation in grading. But I want to take this one step further, in part because Starch and many of the researchers from this generation do the same. Starch goes on to link the A through F grading scheme to the standard curve. This is a big movement in the late 1800s and the early 1900s. Researchers are attempting to make grading in education a science rather than an art. And they believe that the way to do this is by making grades conform to the standard curve. This is exactly what Starch does in the final paper. Starch begins by justifying the adoption of the A through F grading scale by suggesting that it will allow us to more easily divide up our marks into a standard curve. Then he takes his A through F scale and does precisely that, divides it up into a standard curve. 3% should be A pluses. 7% should be A minuses, 16% should be B pluses, 23% B minus, 23% C plus, 16% C minus, 7% D plus, 5% D minus, 3% failure. He's not absolutely convinced by these divisions. There's some suggestion that maybe there should be fewer failures as you look at more advanced students. But the question becomes, how do we know that this is an accurate representation of student achievement at all, or progress, or understanding, or whatever it is that you think you're measuring here? I see three major problems here. I'm going to introduce them, but I'm not going to discuss them at great length, because I hope to devote a whole episode to just the question of the use of the standard curve as a way of standardizing grades. First, I think it's absurd to claim that moving to the A through F grade scale will make it easier to fit marks into a curve. Starch's claim here is indefensible. The A through F marks have to be divided up in order to make a curve by way of the 100-point scale anyway. All that's happening here is that we are adding an extra layer, and I think this is important. The extra layer hides the problem. Second, the use of the curve is circular when we're talking about evaluative judgments as opposed to predictive judgments. Predictive judgments are the kinds of judgments that you make when you are talking about the average height of uh, an adult female in North America, for example. That is to say, you start by measuring a large sample creating a curve, and then using that curve to talk about any possible future cases. You have a sort of objective starting point as your curve. 
in the case of grading, you have to pick a standard curve that you are going to use as your objective measure. What's that going to be? Either you're going to make it up the way that starch does, or you're going to take an example from a teacher you find trustworthy, which is what he does later on in the article. At the same time, he's just finished showing that teachers are unreliable when it comes to grading. So how do you justify choosing one standard curve over another? I think you can't. Third, and I think this is a result of my second point, if you use a sample curve from a teacher you trust, or from a number of teachers that you trust, then you need to remember that the curve is not a depiction of student performance, student achievement, student understanding. It's a depiction of teachers' marking habits. I hope you find this account of the A through F grading scale as shocking as I do. Some of you may think that my presentation is exaggerated. I hope I've presented a clear and convincing case, but I don't expect you to be convinced I believe in education, and I bet you do too. But we can only make the system better if we are courageous enough to confront the glaring problems. Thank you for listening. I welcome your feedback. I know that these topics are controversial. You can email me at you at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your teachers, with your students, with your colleagues. Intro and outro music is Don't Let It Rain by Old Savannah. Still, I feel. And there can be no wrong. Have you seen it?